Welcome back to the Dissolve Podcast for episode 22, Disintegrating Rubber Frog Edition. I'm your host, Tasha Robinson, Senior Editor at the Dissolve. This week, Clint Eastwood is bringing Broadway's Jersey Boys to the big screen, which prompts us to chat a bit about the perils and pleasures of cinema's long relationship with stage musicals. Paul Haggis's new film, Third Person, may not seem to connect to that topic, but when we talk about Everything is Connected movies, we'll reveal the coincidental thematic threads that bring this whole podcast together. This week's game, Name That Tune Without That Tune, turned out to be more difficult than we thought as we asked the contestants to identify iconic songs from iconic musicals based on non-iconic lyrics. Then we wrap up with the dueling recommendations and 30 seconds to sell. As a heads up, there's a massive construction project going on in the office, so you may hear stray pounding, sawing, buzzing, or drilling in the background from time to time, but we pray it'll all be over soon. Stay tuned. As we're recording this, Clint Eastwood's film version of the billion-dollar Broadway smash Jersey Boys isn't even in theaters yet, but it's already winning praise and taking flack because the trailers make it look like a very literal adaptation that just puts the play up on the screen. Granted, the original show is plenty cinematic, given that it has the four members of the four seasons each telling part of their collective story in their own conflicting words, with lots and lots of songs mixed in. But the problem with going from stage to screen is being judged by people in both fields for being untrue to the new medium. So here to judge the stage-to-screen musical adaptations of the world are... Scott Tobias. Nathan Rabin. And Noel Murray. That was nicely theatrical. Congratulations. <laughs> well, I understand from uh, from us talking beforehand that I'm the only one who's seen the Broadway version, the stage version of Jersey Boys. Though, Noel, I, I'm given to understand you have a little sort of passing experience with it? Well, yeah, just because I, I watch the Tony Awards every year. And so the year that it won the Tony... They had performances, and then in the years since, they keep bringing the guys back because it's a popular show. So I've seen I've seen several numbers rather performed. And you know, from my experience with seeing Broadway shows and then seeing the Tony Awards, the the Tony versions that you see are basically just removed directly from the plays and maybe shrunk down a little, but not modified very much. And that's kind of what people tend to say about uh, film versions of plays. They're often just taken directly from the stage and, and put on the screen. Often there's an effort to open them up a little bit because you know stages can't stages can't you know be a mountaintop in quite the same way uh, as the opening shots of sound of music but uh, you know it goes back and forth uh, exactly how much it's opened up and sometimes when it's opened up and uh people are crowded in too much like they were in uh 2012's Les Miserables people end up making the opposite complaint this is too opened up this is too busy this is too crowded it kind of feels like musicals can't win but uh, I mean does it bother you one way or another when uh when what you see on the stage is exactly what comes up on the screen I would say that it doesn't necessarily bother me. I, I, you know, I don't live in New York. I don't live in a big city, so I don't get to see a lot of big Broadway musicals or, or musicals in general. So for me, uh, you know, I've watched DVD versions of the Stephen Sondheim musicals from the '80s that are basically just like PBS videotapes of the shows, and that for me is just fine because I get to see the performance, and it's the recording of the performance as close to as it was on stage as possible that I find uh, enjoyable. So, but I understand why some people who are who are more uh, hardcore cinema inclined uh, get annoyed when things are are not as they say cinematic. Noel, you and I actually disagreed a bunch about this issues a few years back when Passing Strange came out. Spike Lee's uh, recorded version of Passing Strange, which was basically uh, just he had cameras present for. I don't remember if it was one of the last performances or the very last performance, um, but he basically recorded it on stage and cut it together in a movie. And I loved that show. I'm so glad that a, a 
version of it was released that was touring that that people could see but at the same time i said okay this isn't a movie you disagreed with me really strongly yeah i do disagree i I disagree because i think that the when it comes to passing strange there's actually uh elements of editing and camera placement that do make it more cinematic even though it's actually not filmic if you know what i mean because Mm -hmm. it actually looks like a videotape and less like film uh, but I did think that Spike Lee didn't just film the show, but he did actually uh, interject himself. That said, I would have had no problem if it had just been a fairly straightforward rendition of the show, because the show was great, and I would not get to see it otherwise. Scott, you're a notorious cinematic purist who also hates being in the audience at uh, stage musicals. Well, stage plays in general, because they make you uncomfortable. We've talked a bunch about this. <laughs> you love it when they come in and, uh, and talk to you. Yeah, that's the only, you, yeah, that's that's the only thing that makes me uncomfortable. The, the, most of it is I just don't, I don't, I don't, I certainly don't like to watch something that's that's going to be long and bad. But I saw evidence, I, I, I enjoyed, I enjoyed evidence new queue i saw that and i've driven through new jersey even though i haven't seen jersey boys um so uh, but i think one of the problems that i'm that's having the way to experience new jersey is <laughs> driving through it and thinking about jersey boys yeah. um I, my problem with the, the with a lot of the, the, i have two separate problems with a lot of uh, the the very few musicals that we see one is that that, that we whether directors who just don't know how to stage musicals well uh, i think tom hooper's direction in, of les miserables is just awful uh, and really doesn't have give you much perspective i think he tries to make it so kind of real uh, you know and he's got all of these close-ups that you really don't get a, a sense of the scope of the play or the music or what the hell you want to call it and then and then um the, the other pro- problem is is that um hollywood is so conservative and so wants success in one arena to translate into success in its arena that they just bring that they just you know, we'll hire the director of the stage play, like Susan Stroman on the producers, or uh, Felita Lloyd on, on Mamma Mia, and have them just stage it for film. And it's not—it doesn't work either way, uh, in, in my in my view. I don't think it, what we lack is is a Vincent Minnelli. We lack somebody. Uh, we lack filmmakers who have um, a sense of of the language of musicals as it can apply to film. Uh, I mean, do we have anybody like that? No, I mean, I mean, I'm certainly not looking looking to something like Dancer in the Dark as as a as a way out. That's kind of that's an extreme example of a film that I really love that isn't that also isn't terribly well choreographed. Is really kind of a almost like a deconstruction of uh, of uh, how to make a musical. I just think I just think we don't have anybody who can do. Who could who can make a really great film musical, or at least is is attempting it right now? So you don't think Rock of Ages was a, a brilliant film musical? <laughs> I miss. I, I gave that one a miss. I, you oh, know, God. yeah. I, I enjoyed the hell out of that film as a, a really cheesy experience, but uh, it and Rent, I think, both have a problem oh, where it, neither one of them, uh, to me, is as much. Well, the Rent, the direction in Rent is awful, but for both of those films, the problem is more in the staging, the performances, the material just not working on on film the way that it does on stage i think a little more so than the direction well mm-hmm. rent is an interesting guess too because they did what you are supposed to do when you're making a uh, movie out of a musical they got everybody who was in the original cast um they preserved the integrity of the thing and it made no sense whatsoever because they all seemed way too old mm-hmm. when they were in uh, broadway and then like nine friggin years later when uh they're on film they look like you know ancient people pretending <laughs> to be uh you know newly post-college bohemian uh, and yeah, that's that's a really I hadn't really thought about that Scott before, but we do not have a great filmmaker who makes musicals uh, in this day and age. You'd figure, like considering how many of our great filmmakers come from the world of music video, that they would have a little bit more uh, of I don't know uh, natural tendency towards that. But yeah, that that's that's pretty perplexing. 
that there is not a Vincent Minnelli uh, of 2014? Well, I think the key word there uh, is Scott was attempting. Because I do think we have filmmakers who could make a really good musical. I think Michelle Gondry could. I think Spike Jones could. I think Francois Ozan could. Um, you know, a lot of these people definitely could make a great Oh, Ozan, Ozan did. did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was with eight women, right? Well, eight, eight, eight women, eight women, of course, yeah. Right. Um, but I, I want to push back a little bit with you saying that they just, just take what was already on the stage and transfer it over because, um, you know, Rent is actually kind of an anomaly. I mean, ordinarily what happens is they bring in people who were not in the original. Right, they bring in Meryl right. Streep. You know, Meryl Streep was not in Mamma Mia. Or Russell um, Crowe. Or Russell Crowe oh. and, and Les Miserables. And, and they bring big in people movie stars. a lot of times don't have the chops. Yeah. You know, I mean, I... I actually like Tim Burton's version of Sweeney Todd. I wondered if you're going to bring uh, which that is up. kind of which is, which is which is very cinematic, but you know the singing in that show is awful, um, and that's that's bad because the songs are really the whole the whole damn show is sung. So you really need people who actually can sing to to give it to do it justice. So that's a case where I think visually it works. Uh, but the actual musical qualities are not there. Yeah, that was the movie that, that definitely made me come around and Tim Burton's insistence on using Helena Bonham Carter and Johnny Depp for everything. <laughs> I, I've come around were a little. I've come around a little on Johnny Depp singing in that. Yeah. But Helena Bonham Carter, I mean, a good lord, she looks the part. She does not have the pipes for it. No, but I I, I will agree. It, it, it that is at least I like the movie, and I think it really has to do with with Burton. I think right, I think right. I think it is quite well staged. It's, uh, it's very cinematic. Yeah. and it has a real sensibility uh, to it, which I feel like a lot of these don't. I'm thinking back of like one of my other favorites, uh, which also very very morbid from the last thirty years, A Little Shop of Horrors. Oh yeah, which kind of did a little bit of a half and half, where they got Ellen Green uh, from the original production, who's fantastic and has the pipes, but then also Rick Moranis, who also uh, can sing uh, which is nicely and with that they made no real effort to kind of hide the phoniness of it if anything mm-hmm. kind of um, Frank Oz kind of played up you know the artificiality of it the fact that this all looks like it was shot on a back lot because this was all shot on a back lot and I feel like yeah the idea of um, yeah but we also have kind of the um, well I forgot what I was going to say <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know I go back to the uh, to West Side Story in 1961 right, right. that is another play that I mean if you look at it on the screen it looks like it was shot on a set because it well, was oh, totally and again there's very little attempt to disguise that and it's still I think it works fine because the performances are so good because the songs are so lively because the editing is so good it, it moves along and it doesn't need to be in a more real plane and part of that just has to do with the nature of musicals you know musicals right. don't take place in a in a real space Oh, but I, I would actually push back a little bit and say that I, I think West Side Story, the, the movie, is spectacularly well choreographed for the camera. The camera mm-hmm. is, you know, it, it is. It's definitely, a, I guess, a film play. I mean, I don't think they, you know, make an attempt to to make you seem like that the, the jets and the sharks live in the real world. <laughs> but but uh, but it, it's it's in cinemascope. There's a lot of, you know, I think I think the key to that movie that a lot of movies now don't get is that it's okay to kind of hold hold the shot for a while and, and allow allow a lot of movement within the frame so you get a real sense of how uh of how you know this large group of of dancers and singers kind of kind of move together you know if you chop that up then you kind of then you lose that that continuity yeah that's one of my my least favorite things in any movie involving dancing is the, mm-hmm. the move towards yeah. editing that keeps you from actually I mean, that, seeing and the that's lame and that's that's lame is in a nutshell there i mean and, and also uh, uh chicago you know? yes uh, right which which I rewatched recently, and I actually liked more than I remember liking it when I saw it in theaters. But it still has that problem of the, of the staging of it being all chopped up, so you don't actually have that continuity of performance. The dance from one one step to another is it's all sort of just 
flailing limbs and not actually graceful movement. I've always been less down on Chicago than I think anybody else I know, though, because the visuals are so spectacular. And because I like the the presentation, which a lot of musicals do, of the idea that the singing is actually taking taking place in a sort of dream space. That people, like acknowledging that people don't just spontaneously burst into song and dance in the real world. So like overtly acknowledging that, that this is sort of make pretend. And as make pretend, it can look a lot more visually dynamic and get away with it. I wish it was edited differently but I, I don't have a problem with the look of it. But uh, before we get too far afield, uh, let's let's talk about a little bit about fidelity. Uh, again, uh, Jersey Boys has already taken a, a lot of flack for possibly, <laughs> without anybody knowing yet, possibly being too faithful to the source material. And then you have Sweeney Todd taking flack, on the other hand, for uh, cutting the ballad of Sweeney Todd from the beginning and end, which I think is a little crazy since it's, yes, it's a catchy song, but it's a framing device, which I think would work very oddly in a film. And this happens all the time, especially with these big Broadway productions that run four hours. You're going to have to cut musical sequences. You're going to have to cut plot. But then when they do, people say, well, this isn't the play I loved. <laughs> but you don't cut the Ballad of Sweeney Todd. You don't cut it. <laughs> it's, the, it's the crescendo that ends the show. I mean, I mean, it begins and ends the show. And if it's gone, then you've missed an emotional beat that has to be there. But anyway, that's a whole other argument. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, uh, for me, I'm excited about uh, seeing Jersey Boys because it's going to apparently be more faithful. That's going to have that sort of Rashomon structure. And in the trailer, you see they don't hide it in the trailer, which is very exciting to me. They show the performers looking into the camera and telling their story. Um, you know, whereas most often when people make musicals, they try and disguise it when, they, when they're when they're selling it. Well, I think there's kind of an interesting um, continuity here, and in that uh, Clint Eastwood, who directed uh, Jersey Boys, um, starred in a motion picture entitled "Paint Your Wagon," best <laughs> uh, known for the song "Gonna Paint Your Wagon, Gonna Paint Your Kid," um, which was kind of uh, notorious and, and very much lambasted at the time for taking enormous uh, sort of risks, uh, deviating uh, tremendously from what was an extraordinarily successful, very very popular Broadway play, um, and you know did not. Uh, do well for it, and, and I guess Clint Eastwood, uh, according to Wikipedia, uh, you know, decided that because Painter Wagon uh, went so horribly awry, that's kind of um, strengthened his resolve to become a director to kind of have control over these things. So yeah, I very much suspect that uh, he will be very, very faithful to it, which can be a good and a bad thing, you know, when people deviate from things that are extraordinarily successful and it fails, they look like idiots. I'm thinking of something like uh, The Wiz, uh, which was an extraordinarily <laughs> successful uh, musical, you know, starring like a teenager on Broadway. And then they decided, uh, oh, um, Diana Ross wants to play the lead. So suddenly she's like a 40-year-old uh, school teacher and Stanley Lumet wants Sid, to direct. So, Sid, oh, Sidney, all, yeah. uh, Sidney Lumet, yeah. Uh, all of a sudden it's going to be like this nightmarish take on New York uh, in, the, in the late 70s. Um, and that in itself is kind of fascinating to kind of see what Patty Chayefsky and, um, you know, Sidney LeMay, how, you know, these musicals are sort of filtered through their imagination. But for people who loved The Wiz uh, uh, and people who loved Paint Your Wagon, it had to be an extraordinarily maddening experience to see, like, this isn't what I love. This is something different, and it's weird, and it's wrong. Well, before we uh, take our bows and dance off the stage, <laughs> I, let's talk a little about the, there's a kind of a, a different set of skills, I think, involved in being, like playing on Broadway and, and playing on film. Like one requires you to play to the whole room, to the to the back seats, and one requires a much smaller set of, uh, of skills. Do you think that some of these films that take stage stars and put them on screen that suffer for it? 
I don't know that they do. I mean, what what would you think of as an example of a movie, of something? So, I mean, Rent is that? Well, Rent is uh, Adam Rent Pascal's is a big performance one. as Roger Davis in the motion picture Rent. Yeah, I think there'd definitely be one where there are a number of people in that films who just do not hold the screen uh, the way movie stars do. They definitely feel like they've gotten an unmerited promotion uh, based on their fine work in a different medium. But you really have to be able at the same time. You really have to be able to carry. A tune, you know. I, I, I'd like to see Adele Tazim uh, star <laughs> <laughs> get, get a chance. She to... did a movie called Rent. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> um, but um, I don't know. I, you know, the problem, the other opposite problem, is so much worse when you deal with Pierce Brosnan, who cannot <laughs> carry a tune, uh, and and it's just it just kills the the musical. It kind of like kills a lot of the emotion too i mean that's what that's what voices can, can carry is uh is uh, a lot of emotion and and uh and if you don't have somebody who can who can who can at least sing semi competently mm-hmm. uh you're going to be in trouble and it ruins i mean like i, I mean really helen bottom carter and sweeney todd i mean she virtually single-handedly ruins that film uh, sorry, uh, sorry, I mean, uh, sorry, uh, <laughs> Helena Carter. I mean, that said, uh, people who can't sing uh, sometimes are really interesting on-screen presences. I'm thinking of like Lee Marvin in Painter Wagon. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm thinking of, like Rex Harrison couldn't sing, but he sort of he sort of talked his way, uh, you know, through My Fair Lady. Um, so that in itself can be kind of an interesting thing, as long as you don't, you know, over, over as long as you don't strain to try and hit those notes. Yeah. And, and that takes me back to the process. Gerard Butler and Phantom of the Opera and just the sheer amount of crap he took for <laughs> the endless recessive that he uh, he laid down on that particular uh, oh, opera. Or Russell, per- I, Russell I purged Crow that and, from my memory. Uh, Russell but, Crow but that, that said, uh, back, back to Jersey Boys, I mean, I'm really glad they got uh, John Lloyd Young to, you know, uh, to, bring, to come back and be Frankie Valli again because there aren't that many people who can sing like Frankie Valli. And so you need John. You need John Lloyd Young, even though he's not a movie star. If you're going to make Jersey Boys, yeah. yeah I mean, certainly that's much better than uh, than bringing in Pierce Brosnan <laughs> to do that role. But you could have gotten Pierce Brosnan, and then you just speed up his vocals. Oh, there so we go. So all of a sudden, he's singing like Frankie Valli, and you have the handsomeness and box office power of Pierce Brosnan. Boom. Hey, you know, you know what? I actually just thought of a really example of a really good. Uh, uh, movie musical based on based on a play that we haven't mentioned, which is which is Hedwig and the Angry Inch. Oh yeah, oh, yes. yeah, definitely. What, I mean, and there there again, I mean that that's that's all of the principles involved. I mean, for the most part, right? I mean, well, John Cameron Mitchell doing uh, uh, doing his thing, and and uh, that. that that's a very that's a very filmic, um, you know. I think you, I think uh, that's maybe a, a nice um, anomaly or a nice little example. Of it is a nice oh, definitely, because it's also very stagey. It's very presentational. But it can, it's fine. That's right. fine. Yeah, right. that's just it. It it kind of it kind of finds a way to straddle like both worlds and do it like uh, efficiently. I think enough, but with enough passion and emotion that it really comes across. It, it doesn't allow the cinematics to sort of get in its own way. I mean, I think I think that's that's that the late that lame is problem of just like how do we make this movie-ish and you kind of end up stepping on the material a little too much. So there we go, Clint Eastwood. If you uh, haven't finished Final Cut on Jersey Boys, which is just about to hit theaters, go watch Hedwig and the Angry Inch. Go do you likewise, and we'll see how the film comes out. Tasha, that's going to happen. Thanks. Strangely just appeared in the studio, Clint Eastwood. Uh, That will make my day. Thanks for talking, guys. I expect you to uh, sing me out on a a tap-dancing chorus. Bye. (laughs) Paint your wagon. (laughs) 
In 2006, writer-director Paul Haggis received the Best Picture Academy Award for Crash, which followed a wide variety of characters in Los Angeles, linked in various ways by experiences touching on race and racism. This year, he's back with Third Person, another sprawling portrait of relationships in New York City, Paris, and Rome, linked by issues with trust, and by an exasperating narrative device that isn't made clear until the final moments, to the degree that it's made clear at all. Both Crash and Third Person are examples of what we at the Dissolve have long called Everything is Connected movies, the sub-subgenre of films that follow a huge set of characters linked by one theme, or by coincidental interactions, or by a big event at the end. The earthquake and shortcuts, the car crash in Moros Peros, and so on. We're often a bit down on these movies for various reasons. They're often facile and shallow in their attempt to connect all humanity, and they're often a bit contrived. But not always. Here to discuss whether all these films can be considered connected to each other in some way are... <laughs> Scott Tobias. Keith Dubs. Nathan Raven. Scott, I'm given to understand that you have a secret unified field theory of everything is connected movies. Maybe just sort of a tendency. And I was actually thinking about this a little bit more and how it actually applies to almost all movies, not just everything is connected, which is that... Um, it's never really a good idea to come come at you theme first, you know, to, to start with a theme and then have a movie demonstrate that theme. And I think that's kind of the problem with bad everything is connected movies. Uh, Crash being one of them. It's like, well, I want to make a movie about racism, and so and so to demonstrate the effects of racism, I'm going to connect all these stories together rather than have have that theme sort of arise more organically from the story or something like Babel. Uh, by Alejandro González Iñárritu, who's become sort of like the person most associated with this type of film. Or, well, and his, him and Gary Marshall. Here, well, also, and also, uh, we should say uh, Guillermo Arriaga, who's the screenwriter and who, who went on to do, uh, what was it called? The Burning, what was it called? The Valentine's the, Day? No. For crying <laughs> out loud. New Year's Eve? <laughs> um, uh, Gary Marshall wrote the screenplays for... Oh, for goodness sakes. Anyway, yeah. he, he did something with Charlize Theron that was that was of this Everything is Connected uh, genre that was really bad. Uh, burning Plane, The Burning Plane. Um, but, um, but something like Babel's like, well... Here's how a single act of violence sort of, you know, has global implications. And I, I just think that's kind of a bad approach. I mean, to me, uh, better, better examples are something like Shortcuts, which you mentioned, which find, finds sort of a subtler way to take a number of discrete, you know, Raymond Carver short stories and bring them, bring, make them all sort of part of the same universe, uh, which to me opens up a lot of possibilities for a bunch of different themes rather than dem- than a demonstration of just one. I, I think I, in some ways it's kind of just gotten worn out. I think there's a time when, when, when you could use this device and it actually kind of felt profound. Like I, I think the Inurito films are an example of, of diminishing returns. In effect, I think I like Amores Perros. Uh, I remember liking it quite a bit. Uh, 21 grams less Babel, least of all, and by, by kind of a good margin actually. Uh, and Babel was a problem where, where, where any these individual stories might be an okay movie, but they all felt, lesser than you know when they were yoked together but i mean in some ways i mean the best example shortcuts is a good one but also uh the, the kieslowski from the three colors trilogy is kind of ultimately um a everything is connected film uh, each of them in its own way but uh the red most of the last one most of all which also kind of pulls back to shows how all the movies are connected and, and it's not just it's one of the great moments i think in movies, period, um, uh, and I love it. But but um, but yeah, when it's forced, when it feels schematic, when it feels like it's all kind of just kind of uh, there to serve this gimmick, it, that's when it doesn't work. 
Right. And we're referring to these as the everything is connected movies. And I also like to think of them as the everybody is sad uh, <laughs> movies because overwhelmingly, uh, kind of going back to Crash, uh, you would like to imagine that you're kind of watching this incredibly broad spectrum of humanity, of emotions, of people. But for the most part, uh, people in these movies are either incredibly sad and melancholy, possibly because they had a child die, possibly because they had a wife die, possibly they had a pet die. Somebody died in almost all of these movies. Or they're just filled with rage and anger because they had a pet die or they had a wife die. <laughs> or, and there's just, again, it, so it's part of this whole uh, cycle of suffering is what I've also kind of uh, dubbed these movies. And there is this overwhelming tendency to be morose, as well as being overreaching, as well as being uh, kind of facile, as, as well as being kind of convoluted. But again, you know, just like just like Scott and, and Keith, like there are some of these movies that are really profound and where it really, really does work and where it does feel like, you know, uh, that level of ambition is earned and, and merited. So The Secret Source is basically the Everybody Hurts video. Yeah. Everybody. <laughs> Pretty much. Which is actually, yeah. actually borrowed from Eight and a Half and, oh, and, totally. and Wings of Desire, which is kind of an everything is connected movie in its own yeah, way too. I mean in that case it sounds like everything is connected yeah. everything is connected by angels in that case <laughs> yes. yeah. so I, I mean for me I think I feel like part of what makes these movies work or not work is the choice of what specifically connects everybody I, I have a harder time with something like I really like shortcuts up until the end and I kind of feel like the and then there's an earthquake and everybody experiences the same thing is a really intelligent concept but it feels really badly handled mm-hmm. uh, especially in the very abrupt uh, resolution of some storylines i have an even bigger problem with magnolia ending with its mm. its giant reign of frogs oh, and man. so I'll, we can we can fight <laughs> a, we can fight about that when we're, oh, God. All right. when we're all connected by frog rain <laughs> as a side whatever happened to uh, some somebody in the old office ordered a bunch of those rubber frogs that were i i had frogs. one i bought one off ebay and i'm ashamed to say what i paid for because i thought it was, it was such a cool prop to have and, and sort of like it kind of wasn't made to last. I kind of just left it on a shelf, and it kind of, kind of uh, started to fall apart. And, and eventually, my my uh, investment in, in in this movie memorabilia ended up in the dumpster behind my house. Oh, it was that? kind of grossly. It was like attracting cat fur. It was not. But then somebody, it? but then somebody picked it, picked up the frog out of the dumpster. And, and, it, then, saved and then they her, saved his daughter's life. Right. But then his daughter went on to touch the heart of a, a puppy. <laughs> <laughs> that thing was amazingly jellied. That was a weird, weird prop. Yeah. But I could I could understand wanting to be a part of you know to feel connected to that movie my, my point being more so that sometimes it's just it's the, the whether the concept itself works and whether the concept itself feels overreaching but i'm curious whether you have well first off if you have favorites uh in the genre and second of all if what what makes those particular examples of the genre work for you guys well i mean uh to uh Magnolia uh, would be a big one for me. I well, and, and it's very uh, Altman inspired, and, and sort of the na- you know beyond shortcuts, your, your Nashvilles and and um, uh, Alan Rudolph, uh, I think also is kind of a guy. And your weddings kind of made real. Uh, oh, oh, totally, in a wedding yeah. as well. But you know, kind of choose me, sort of trouble in mind. Like he was kind of a real whiz at creating these kind of uh, sort of puzzle narratives where things kind of came together and kind of like you know poetic and, and uh, mysterious kind of ways. He also had the advantage of you know it was not uh, a cliche by that point. 
point. I think everybody who did it after Crash has to deal with the shadow of Crash and the fact that that was such a big movie that everybody loved uh, that maybe <laughs> did not do this paradigm uh, as artfully or, or as eloquently or, or as powerfully uh, as, as it could have been done. Or in some ways, the, the cycle, the modern cycle, sort of Maurice Barros into mm-hmm. other ones into Crash kind of emptied out into the Gary Marshall uh, New Year's Eve and, uh, movies, Valentine's Day, well, which actually. I, I've actually never seen. Uh, I've never seen Valentine's Day, but I've seen New Year's Eve, but only like in 10 minute segments on HBO uh, disconnected. But I feel like I've seen the whole movie at this point. Oh, it's you, so, you probably so bad. <laughs> you, you, you gain nothing from seeing all yeah. those uh, little sitcom moments uh, stitched together. Um, I, I one, one other, I, I, I guess I maybe could mention them as favorites, but Max Ophels actually did a couple of movies that were, that are, you know, of the, of a type, um, you know, the, the oh, follow. Yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, the earrings of Madame, Madame Day follow, you know, a pair, of, fair pair of earrings and, uh, Laurent, Laurent is the other one that, that, that where you're, where, you know, you're going from one, uh, romantic pairing to, to another and just, you know, like, you know, a carousel of sorts. Run, um, so uh, that that works pretty well, and, the, and then the the Bresson film L'Argent uh, follows this you know forged five hundred franc note as it's passed around, and and it's another, it's an it's you know again you don't you're not it's it's not the same as like uh, an Altman type experience. It's really just because you're just following this object, but it's kind of an interesting way through a narrative anyway. I thought the red violin was kind of interesting in sure. that regard, but I, it, I mean, do you find that you have like more of a preference for the or um, Winchester? What was that movie? Winchester three fifty seven, something like that. Winchester seventy three. Winchester seventy three. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, somebody out there that knows guns is just clutching their <laughs> hair, hair and like moaning right now. Um, I'm curious whether you you think that all, overall, like films connected by a theme or films connected by an event or films connected by an object tend to work better for you? I, I you know, I, I, don't, I don't really want to make a, a kind of declaration just, be, just because uh, um, it has to be done well, you know. I, oh, I, think, sure. I, think, I think part of our exasperation is, is something like all the Crash-inspired films, a lot of them are, just don't work out. Well, Crash wasn't that great to begin with, and, and uh, uh, the ones that try to emulate it are not, uh, are, are, are lesser films. Hmm. I mean, I just, I guess I tend to prefer something like Nashville that's connected by a scene and that's more about all of the ways that all of the different experiences that people can have, like even within the same space, a lot more so than something connected by a a theme or concept like crash. I just, I find that the idea of, uh, of people being connected by a scene or a locale, it just seems far more like a, a real world thing for me than like picking and choosing all of these people who are all experiencing the same thing uh, conceptually. And then usually through a tremendous coincidence or somehow brought together. The problem for me with so many of these movies is they come across as feeling very programmatic and very contrived in the, in the effort to bring people together. I think that's a really good point. Um, yeah, one, one, one thing, one movie I kind of wanted to mention that almost has kind of both the good and bad elements of everything as connected movies is, is Cloud Atlas, mm-hmm. which is something that I think has has um, an interesting you know theme, which I guess what enslavement throughout the ages would that be about right? Sure. Yeah. Uh, uh, but then there's also kind of this this new agey kind of spiritual component that's kind of tying it together as well and uh i mean the film is i find the film to be kind of a fascinating mess i think probably everyone i think everyone at this table feels like i'm I'm very fond of that film and 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 will be the first to admit its its problems yeah right someone inexplicably have not seen uh, cloud atlas yet 
uh, Tasha, you're 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 also. What would you think of Cloud I'm, Atlas? I'm a fan of it. Okay. I mean, I I think again, it's uh, it's a little contrived and in some ways a little stiff. Like the the attempt to bind the stories together by having the same actors and actresses play, you yeah. know, cross genre and cross racial characters, I think ended up being a distraction more than uh, the unifying theme that it was meant to be. But I think it's beautifully shot, and I I think it's really ambitious. I did not think that that book was adaptable to film. No. And like seeing seeing the results, I was really pretty impressed with what they do, particularly with editing and tying it all together. I think it could use some nips and tucks in some places. But I think it's one of the more successful examples of the genre for me, at least. I, I like that the idea. I mean, this is something that... Um that the Errol Morris film um, Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control does really well. The two films kind of remind me of, of each other in the sense that they're trying to find ways to kind of rhyme uh, these disparate stories. But I mean, with 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 Morris, there's no connection whatsoever between all the subjects in his movie. But the but but the films have kind of a similar rhythm when they're really clicking. Um, um, but um, but I don't know. I, I guess I'm a little less charitable to Cloud Atlas, but a lot of the problems with Cloud Atlas are really not related to the everything is connected thing at all. It is related to things like, you know, the limitations of some of the performers and, and limitations of uh, really cheesy makeup and uh, that, that sort of thing. I think there's also, I, I mean, for me, there's just an, an extra layer of interest in a film that takes up that sort of everything is connected genre of the idea and does something new with it by compressing people into a space or in that case, dragging people out over an immense amount of time so they couldn't physically meet. One of, one of the things that came up when I was sort of looking for examples of these online, a lot of people cite Gosford Park as one. And mm. my first thought was, no, no, that, that can't be true because they're all in the same locale. It's, you know, an upstairs, downstairs thing um, between p- people in a, a British household. But the more I think about it, the more I, I feel it is actually one of those movies. And the theme, theme that connects everybody is the fact that the, of their physical location because it's all these little subsets it's all about class it's all about uh, relationships and they're divided into little groups just as in any one of these other movies i don't know i think that's probably still pretty thin for my i mean what, what, what's the, what's the difference between just a subplot and 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 everything is con- a movie with a bunch of subplots characters and subplots and everything is connected movie this sense that they're they're tied together by physical location but very little else i mean if if they were spread out over uh that area in britain instead of compressed into a house it would just be about uh british classicism essentially there's a murder mystery that kind of ties uh through it but the way the murder mystery is resolved is essentially a connection that you weren't looking for you know the kind of seemingly coincidental connection that that drives a lot of these films there's also a question of parent i forget the details the question of parentage of that movie that kind of proves that everything is connected in ways that are not apparent on the surface either if i'm not mistaken if i remember correctly mm-hmm. yeah i think we could say i mean altman's a real master at the, at the form just because he just there's this kind of that great organic quality to to a robert altman production where where, where there's a, a giant ensemble and everything is kind of you know, being woven together in a pretty loose way. You know, that's that's not what that would not be something a way you would describe an ensemble film like Crash, which is which is where everyone is working together in a really didactic way. I think that might in a very controlled be, way. Yeah, because like uh, Altman's working uh, methods are very organic, very loose, kind of improvisational. Whereas mm. you have your haggis, and everything is very written. Uh, Some might even say overwritten. Haggis. Uh, over yeah, over overly uh, programmed. Yeah. 
Which brings us full circle back to uh, Paul Haggis. <laughs> it does bring Everything us full is circle to Paul Haggis. Guys. You know, it's, uh, it, it's all a rich tapestry, but I think we should get out of this topic before frogs start raining out of nowhere <laughs> and teaching us something important about life. Guys, thanks for talking. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And now it's time for a game I'm calling Name That Tune Without That Tune, in which I'm going to ask contestants to identify iconic songs from iconic musicals from some of the least iconic lyrics. These are all musicals, guys, that, that you probably all know. Um, to the, the degree that I thought about making this a uh, listen to the audio recording and, and like a conventional Name That Tune thing, but I suspect you would get all of these songs within like three notes. So what I'm trying instead is giving you some of the less recognized lyrics which the the difficulty varies quite a bit in how long it might take you to get to some of these songs. But uh, I guarantee you there there are no deep cuts here. There are no obscure 60s musicals that you've never heard of. If there was a list of top 20 musicals of all time, these musicals would probably all be on it. So I'm asking you to identify the song. Um, You may feel free to identify the musical. You don't get extra points for that. I'm going to be pretty liberal with the song title itself because some of them aren't quite as instinctive as you'd think, but we're going to do something a little weird with scoring in that you get more points the earlier you identify it. So I'm going to more or less slowly read a a series of lyrics, and as soon as you can identify the song, buzz in. Um, If you identify it uh, within uh, the first line, you'll get between four and five points, depending on how many lines we have before we get to the really non-obscure part of the song where it becomes very obvious what it is. So this sounds like it's just Tasha gives us as many points as she feels we deserve. (laughs) (laughs) It might be. You know what? You get 10 points for that observation and, and five points for Gryffindor for cleverness. I'm going to need it. Okay, sound good? Are you guys ready? Uh, quick ready. question. Are these, uh, per our earlier discussion, all stage-to-screen musicals or just movie musicals? Um, they are all definitely movie musicals. I definitely didn't check to see if they were all stage-to-screen, uh, but the vast majority of these came up during our stage-to-screen uh, conversation. Okay. Um, because, again, if you I mean, if you look at the, like, the most iconic musicals out there, they're almost all stage-to-screen. But I make no guarantees. Okay. So here to play this game are Keith Phipps. <laughs> Genevieve Kosky. And joining us via Skype, Noel Murray. (laughs) Okay, guys. So you get more points uh, based on how early you identify the song. The Scott Tobias rule is in effect. But if you get it wrong, you only lose one point. Whereas if you get it right on the first line, you can stand to gain as many as five points. Um, Sounds suspiciously like gambling to me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, throw in early and often. All right, here we go. Number one. This is the life of illusion, wrapped up in trouble, laced with confusion. What are we doing here? We take the pressure and we throw away. Conventionality belongs to yesterday. (laughs) See if I was humming this. And I'm going to have such a hard time not singing it. There is a chance that we can make it so far. We start believing now that we can be who we are. Is this fame? No, 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 no. no. <laughs> okay. Negative one for Keith. It's not even a musical. I, I just, all right. I'll shut up now. All right. Uh, the, on the next line, nobody gets any points. So anybody else want to jump in? No, uh, don't have it. All right. So uh, that last line was, we start believing now that we can be who we are. Fame. Grease uh, is the word. Oh, jeez. Oh, <laughs> Now, and see, this is this is how this goes, because if I were to sing, we take the pressure and we throw away, you'd, you'd be all over it immediately. But the, the lyrics aren't quite as familiar. All right, let's move on to, <laughs> we've got a net, net gain of negative one for that one. Uh, number two, 
When I'm with her, I'm confused, out of focus and bemused, and I never know exactly where I am. Unpredictable as weather, she's as flighty as a feather, she's a darling, she's a demon, she's a lamb. (laughs) She's covering her eyes with her hands. She'd outpester any pest, drive a hornet from its nest. She could throw a whirling dervish out of whirl. No, Marie, what do we what do you have? Oh, it's it's uh, sound and music. Is it uh, is it Maria? Yes, it is ah. Maria. Uh, you get only one point for that because you were we were deep into the uh, oh, okay. into the the parts that I I was hoping somebody would grab it earlier. But you you get a positive point for that, and you get the acclaim of being the first one to uh, to score on the board for this. <laughs> Racing into the lead. <laughs> Number three, she thinks she's in love. She thinks she's in Spain. She isn't in love. She's merely insane. It must be the heat, or some rare disease, or too much to eat, or maybe it's fleas. (laughs) Keep away. (laughs) No. Uh, I feel pretty? Yes, you are correct. Uh, Two points for that one. All right. Uh, This is not uh, the random scoring that Genevieve thinks it is. It's based entirely on uh, like the percentage of like how far we have to get into this before you identify it. But yes, uh, the next lines are uh, keep away from her, send for Chino, which would perhaps be a little bit of giveaway. This is not the Maria we know. Ah, more Marias. (laughs) (laughs) They're all Marias all the way down. Oh, this is one of the harder ones. Okay. Number four. Oh, good. Something harder. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's the thing. I went to a, a show tune sing-along uh, at Sidetrack in Chicago for many, many years. I am probably the worst person in the world to judge the difficulty of this particular one. So, like, I didn't I didn't try to make it super hard. It may be super hard. Let's find out. Is it fame? No, I was not a was, 15 was, points was for not Keith. A guess. <laughs> for guessing it before we even got in there. All right. Number four. Loaded with charisma is my jauntily sauntering, ambling shambler. She walks into a room, and you know you must shuffle along, join the parade. She's the quintessence of making the grade. I'm a son of a gun. She's one of a kind. This is the, anybody jumping in, because this is the zero, zero point line coming up. One singular sensation, every little step she takes. (laughs) 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 We're not letting you jump in on that one, because we don't want to. That's too bad. All right. All right, number five. When the band began to play, the sun was shining bright. Now the milkman's on his way. It's too late to say goodnight. No? That's good morning from uh, Singing in the Rain. surely is. You get three for that one. All right, not not sliding Singing in the Rain past me. Uh, You know, I I really wanted to do, because I wanted to do the most iconic songs uh, from each of these musicals. Singing in the Rain itself is like about eight lines long. It is the (laughs) shortest song. All right, number six. This is a short one. Through despair and hope, through faith and love, till we find our place on the path unwinding. And the next line is the giveaway. Hmm. <laughs> I really want to hum these songs. <laughs> till we find our place. No, I'm not. Uh, in the circle, the circle of life. Oh. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think what this uh, quiz taught that, me more than anything is there's a lot of, of lyrics in songs that I thought I knew by heart that yeah. I don't know by heart. That's actually from a film called The Lion King. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for the musical mansplaining. Okay. I sang that song in my fifth grade talent show. <laughs> you you can point right now by singing the lines I, I no. just read to you. No. Okay. Number seven. 
if we wanted to be really mean to the contestants, we would just like play the songs uh, as we, like when the actual podcast comes out, we'd just so be in the music and uh, you know, everybody would, as I say, know within three notes. All right. Number seven, he'll do press ups and chin ups, do the snatch clean and jerk. He thinks dynamic tension must be hard work. Such strenuous living. I just don't understand. <laughs> when in just seven days. <laughs> oh, no, no, you got oh. to it first. Uh, I can make you a man. You can make me a man. I had it. One point for Noel. <laughs> right. Noel feels pretty and you can make him a man. <laughs> <laughs> I can make him a pretty man. Number eight. Alley-oop. Hurry off to school, child. I'm warning you. Run away. Child, you're going to pay if you stay. Look around. Something's coming down, down the street for you. You betcha. You betcha, betcha, betcha. Best believe it. Something's come to get you. Oh, that was uh, Genevieve. What do you have? Is that the trolley song? No, no. it's not. Oh. Negative one for Genevieve. Mm. Uh, were you in? No, I wasn't getting ready to buzz. I thought I heard a second buzz that was almost simultaneous. No, you heard me go, mm. <laughs> Okay, fair. Uh, all right. You betcha. Betcha, betcha, betcha. Best believe it. Something's come to get you. You betcha. You better watch your back and your tail. No one? Because we go straight from there into Little Shop, Little Shop. Oh, oh. Little Shop, Little Shop of Terror. You know, I've, I've actually never seen that movie. Oh, my what? gosh, no. What? Oh, it's really okay, fired. Well, yeah, seriously. <laughs> you, you're at seven points. You won. Just, just get off this podcast and go watch that movie. Uh, number nine. We'll raise a glass and sip a drop of schnapps in honor of the great good luck that favored you. We know that when good fortune favors two such men, it stands to reason we deserve it too. To us and our good fortune, be happy, be healthy, long life. And if our good fortune never comes, here's to whatever comes. Last line. Drink Lachaim to life. Out to life. Put it on the roof. Yes. <sighs> you, you should be playing this, Tasha. Not oh, <laughs> you know, I, I, but it, it would be such a quick game. I mean, maybe we should go back and, and redo it. Because as I said, I did not know whether this would be super difficult or everybody would be rolling their eyes at me. So no one cares if you grow or if you shrink. No one, dr- <laughs> <laughs> no one dries when your eyes get wet and weepy. From the crying, you would think this place would sink. Empty belly life. Rotten smelly life. <laughs> yes, Keith. Oh. Uh, is it food? Glorious food? No, no, no. I know what it is now. I know what it is now. It's too late. First yeah. of all, you get a negative one. Second oh. of all, Noel buzzed in right after you. Noel, do you have it? I believe it's a hard knock. Yes. It is a hard knock life That's for why us. I actually knew that one. All right. So Noel has eight to Keith's negative two and Jenny's <laughs> negative one. All right. Well, I thought that Noel might well dominate in this segment, but I didn't realize that the domination would be so complete. I feel a little guilty. Uh, and I don't. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just happy as someone other than Keith won. Seriously. All right. Next time around. So am I. Next time around, you guys can force me to uh, to hum uh, all of the songs, and this will just be the hum along edition of the podcast. Thanks for playing, guys. Thanks. Thank I you. guess. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>
And now, if you have a minute, you have time for the recommendation portion of our show, 30 Seconds to Sell, where we order two people to give us their best elevator pitch for something they like related to cinema, with the caveat that their elevator ride is exactly 30 seconds long. To up the attention, they'll be competing for my approval as host, because I'm certainly not going to watch more than one movie in my remaining precious lifetime. First up, Keith Phipps. You have 30 seconds to sell me on something. Go. I would like to recommend a podcast called You Must Remember This by uh, hosted by Karina Longworth, who's a film writer formerly of Los Angeles. Uh, um, Los, not Los Angeles. Oh, no, LA Weekly. Okay, I'm losing my time. Anyway, it is a deep dive into a specific issue uh, regarding uh, Hollywood past. And there's a great uh, episode about Frances Farmer, the uh, troubled actress immortalized in song by Nirvana. Uh, it's a good place to start. It's a fourth episode. Uh, it's just a really nice uh, docu- short audio documentary, com and iTunes. Under time. Good and efficient, uh, unlike podcasts, which tend to be longer than 30 seconds. All right, Noel, can you get us out of this podcast in 30 seconds or less? Go. Uh, I like to do Shout Factory's The Angela Mao Ying Collection. Mao Ying was known as Lady Whirlwind for her martial arts style of spins and flails. And I think just reading the titles of the movies in this collection should sell you. Broken Oath, A Queen's Ransom, The Himalayan, Stoner, The Tournament, and When Taekwondo Strikes. That's it. How how far under that was? That the you have just broken the all time record. That was nineteen seconds, <laughs> basically nineteen point seven seconds. Okay, well those sound awesome. Uh, I mean, I, I, I'm sorry, but Noel has to win this one uh, for coming in so far under and for bringing such enthusiasm to the table. Uh, but once again, that I like that you guys are both pandering directly to my tastes with uh, uh, smart women and women who kick ass. Both of these things uh, near and dear to my heart. It's a really good podcast. Definitely worth. I think anyone who listens to this would enjoy it and uh, including you karina's great so i will uh i will take those recommendations but in a very real way uh, noel is once again uh, the the undisputed winner of this podcast it's the all noel edition all the time thanks guys Sadly, we've come to the end of episode 22 of the Dissolve podcast. We hope you'll be humming How Do You Solve a Problem like Noel's podcast dominance along with us until episode 23 arrives in two weeks. Meanwhile, the subtle hidden theme of cinema connects the Dissolve in all its various forms on Tumblr, Twitter, and Facebook, and at thedissolve.com, where we hopefully won't be experiencing a rain of gelid rubber frogs anytime soon. You can feel more connected to us by sending your questions, comments, topic suggestions, or game ideas to feedback at thedissolve.com, or by rating or reviewing us at the iTunes Podcast Store, which bumps us ever so slightly closer to the top of the podcast heap and lets other people know we're out there. The Dissolved Podcast is produced by Genevieve Kosky, with assistance from Colin Griffith. Thanks for listening. <laughs>